We all know that things change. We see it every day. We read about it every day. We see it in obvious ways. People are born, they grow old, they die. We see the seasons change. We see the weather change, the temperature change. Relationships change, our friends change, we change. So we know this. We read in the newspaper that people are dying every day. And yet the the profundity of this truth that things change has a hard time really penetrating. People have noticed this for a while very ancient poem in India called the Mahabharata highlighted this. One of the characters in this story, it's a story of five brothers who kind of, or at least part of the story is a story of five brothers who went off into the wilderness. They were exiled into the wilderness and they had all these adventures in the wilderness. One of the brothers at some point was... um, Engaging in a conversation, a battle of wits, in a sense, with a kind of an unseen being who asked him, and who had asked his, several of his other brothers, what is the greatest wonder? And several of his other brothers had tried to answer the question and had failed to answer it to the uh, unseen being's satisfaction, and they were struck dead. The, the fifth brother came along, and he responded this way, He took his time answering. He said, This, I think, is most wonderful. That the man of the world, even though he is seeing before his eyes constantly creatures dying and passing away, never for a moment the idea enters him, I too have to fall. I am also a creature destined to be destroyed. Even if it is told to him, it never enters his mind. Only the surface mind mind understands the language the actual sense never goes into his head. That every man must one day die, yet every man lives as if they were immortal. This is the greatest wonder. So, this, uh, the question comes of how do we begin to let this truth penetrate? And why, actually, is it important to let it penetrate? Part of the reason it's important from our, from the perspective of our spiritual happiness to let it penetrate, to let this truth of impermanence penetrate, is that actually a lot of the ways that we struggle, the ways that we suffer, are grounded in 
not really understanding this truth of impermanence. Our usual way of looking for happiness kind of runs counter to this truth. We we often try to create happiness by having things that we want. We think that in some way we think that this experience, this thing is what will make us happy. That that car, that's what will make me happy. I won't have to pay so much for gas anymore and then I will feel like I'm more secure in my financial situation and that will make me happy. So we think that you know having something out there having some things will make us happy. And while I think we do know at some level that these individual things aren't going to make us happy. Well, there's two pieces about this. One is that um, while we know at some level that these individual things aren't going to make us happy, we do kind of have a deeper-seated belief that what happiness in life means is somehow managing to construct a sequence of those getting what we want. So that if I can get that thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, that's what it means to live a successful and happy life. And so we end up on this wheel trying to keep getting the things we want. The other part of this uh, is that if we actually look, and, and we look as we look more closely, which we can do in our meditation, if we actually look at what our minds are doing um, when we're going after something, when we actually look at you know that wanting, how that wanting deceives us in a way into thinking, if I just get that thing, that is going to make me happy. That is going to do it for me. You know, even a piece of chocolate. You know, it's like simple, small thing, like looking at the way our mind functions around wanting is to believe its story that if I get that thing I'll be happy so there's this kind of if you look at this in your own experience you can see that this is the way the, 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 the deception of wanting and so the um, this way of going about getting getting happiness we go about it by trying to get things in the world. We also go about it, go about happiness by trying to um, get good opinions from people, you know, have people see us the way we want to be seen. That's another big way we think we'll be happy. If only I'm seen in this way. If only people respect me, if only people think I'm smart, if only people think I'm a good meditator, if only whatever. And so uh, this kind of happiness depends on the opinions of others. The first kind of happiness is kind of placing our, uh, the way of getting things, you know, creating a kind of an environment which we think will make us happy. 
the other is creating a kind of a mental environment where other people are supporting us in a way that we think will make us happy. Both of these things depend on things external to us. And these things external to us are not very reliable. Things in the world decay, break, get lost, grow old, fall apart. And if we're tying our happiness to the opinions of others, there's not much more unreliable than the opinions of other people. We don't have much say over what other people think. So this unreliability of what we're tying our happiness to, this is the way that we think we're going to be happy, and yet the way that we are are trying to become happy is depending on something that is inherently unreliable because it's impermanent, because it's subject to change. So it is because of not understanding this truth of impermanence that this deceitful uh, pattern of wanting can fool us into believing its story. Yes, this will make you happy. A poet, Rainer Maria Rilke, expresses this uh, connection between impermanence and unsatisfactoriness. And we, spectators, always, everywhere, turn toward the world of objects. It fills us. We arrange it. It breaks down. We rearrange it, then break down ourselves. So not seeing this truth, we fundamentally misunderstand how to be happy. Seeing the truth seeing this truth, beginning to really deeply uh, open to this truth of impermanence, the mind begins to understand another way of happiness other than satisfying this deceitful wanting. Essentially, it's the happiness of coming into alignment with the truth. When I... When I think of that, my heart relaxes. Oh yeah, it's like this. This is the truth. Things are impermanent. Trying to resist it is futile. Resisting reality, resisting the truth. So this is a, it's a, it's a deeper kind of happiness to be willing to come into alignment with the truth. So there's different ways that we can see impermanence, explore this truth. And um, there's kind of the obvious ways that it manifests, that the, the ways that, you know, if we, if we take even a few minutes to look at the world, we'll see, yes, things change. 
seeing the seasons change, seeing people die, seeing food get eaten and consumed and turned from beautiful vegetables into something else. And there is a subtler way, also a subtler kind of impermanence that begins to open to us as we explore our experience through meditation. Kind of a a seeing, not just that things are changing on this more obvious level, but that things are actually changing way more rapidly than we can even imagine. That every moment of experience is new. Always arising and fading, arising and fading, arising and fading. So I, I like to talk about ways to explore each of these, ways to connect with the truth of impermanence at each of these levels. So the Buddha offered that uh, reflecting on impermanence on a regular basis is very helpful. And he, he, he actually suggested there's five subjects that are really helpful to reflect on frequently. And four of those five subjects are related to impermanence. The fifth subject is related to the conditioned nature of experience and or the, uh, the, um, the aspect of karma, of how our uh, actions impact our, how our choices impact our experience. So this, these four, four, four of these five subjects, he says, we should reflect on these daily. Four of them are related to impermanence. They are to reflect on the fact that I am subject to aging. I am subject to sickness. I am subject to death. And that all that I have everything that I feel belongs to me, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. So these, the, these first three, aging, illness, and death, these are, these are the obvious, these are the obvious forms of impermanence. All of these, actually these four, are, are the obvious forms of impermanence. And the Buddha suggests re- recollecting this on a regular basis, actually turning towards this truth. To not, to not ignore the fact that these spots are starting to appear <laughs> on the hand or you know however the body is aging or you know if you're not at that stage of life yet noticing how your parents are aging or other friends are aging so taking in this truth not pushing it aside he calls these three aging illness and death he calls them heavenly messengers that these are, it's not that they're like depressing things, you know, he doesn't call them depressing messengers. They're the heavenly messengers. There's a kind of a teaching story in the suttas around this. The story is that there's some, some, somebody who had been, you know, engaging in all kinds of unwholesome activities and he ended up in hell. And uh, he met the, the wardens of hell, you know, the people who are kind of at the gate of hell, you know, kind of like the stories of people meeting 
St. Peter's at the pearly gates. It's the meeting King Yama at the gates of hell. And King Yama, in admitting this guy into hell, says, So tell me, didn't you ever see the first heavenly messenger? And this guy says, "Um, No, I don't think so. And he goes on to say, But didn't you ever see a woman or man aged 80, 90, or 100 years, frail, bent like a roof bracket, crooked, leaning on a stick, shakily going along, ailing, youth and vigor gone, with broken teeth, with gray and scanty hair, or or none, wrinkled, with blotched limbs? (laughs) And the man said, Yeah, I've seen that. (laughs) And then then the the King Yama says, Didn't it ever occur to you, an intelligent and mature person, I too am subject to old age and cannot escape it? No, Lord. So this is the same kind of truth of what the story from the Mahabharata was saying. No, we just cannot take it in. We see it, but cannot take it in. And the the understanding here, part of the understanding here, is that in seeing the I too am subject to old age and cannot escape it, let me now do noble deeds by body, speech, and mind. But somehow that it is an inspiration to us in recognizing this is the heavenly messenger part of it that in recognizing that we too are subject to this aging, illness, and death, that it inspires us not to depression, but to kindness, compassion. It's a beautiful thing to have an open heart around this exploration. I think one of the most profound ways of taking in this obvious level of truth is really to spend some time reflecting on our own our own death. Reflecting on death, the, the of our own death, of the, de- the the fact that our loved ones will die, our friends will die, our parents are, will die. Carlos Castaneda, who was uh, trained in a kind of a Native American uh, tradition, Native American spiritual tradition. At one point, uh, I've heard this story, I don't know if it's true, but it sounds good, (laughs) Uh, that he was having dinner with a a group of people, and a, a woman at the table said, I'm finding it really hard to find a spiritual life. And Carlos Castaneda is said to have replied, Every day reflect on the fact that your children, your husband, and your parents will all die, and you'll have no idea in what order. You will soon have a spiritual life. You know, I think our culture hides death. It it is is that's been my experience in any case. I was 47 years old before I saw a dead human being. I was in Burma, and um, we were walking down the road. There's a group of us. I was um, participating in putting on a retreat in the Sagain Hills in the upper regions of Burma. And we would take walks from time to time through the villages. 
and uh, we were walking along the river one day, and there was a huge commotion by the river, like the whole village had gathered by the river, and they were looking out, and there were a few people in the river. And there was a young boy who had gone swimming that morning and had gotten pulled under and had drowned. And um, so we kind of hung around, the group of us kind of hung around as they brought this young boy. I think he was probably 12 years old. He had just ordained as a monk the week before, and he had drowned in the river. I put him on a platform, and everyone gathered around, and there was some chanting and some um, community uh, processing around the the death. And I I was looking at this uh, young boy, and I was standing next to Carol Wilson, who was also at this retreat, and it, it struck me at that moment. It's like, I've never seen a dead body before. This is the first time I've ever seen a dead body, and I'm 47 years old. So it's hard to take in the truth of impermanence if you know you don't even see death. If it's not if it's not obvious to you, if it's not a part of your life, and so I think our culture tends to tends to uh, hide this truth from us. And the Dhammapada says of this recollection on death, many do not realize that we here must die. For those who realize this, quarrels end. When we actually start to take in this truth that we here must die, I will die. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. It doesn't have to have a depressing effect on us. It really can be this sense of of a heavenly messenger that it can inspire us to live more fully, to live more in line with our priorities. Carlos Castaneda's teacher said to him, Don Juan said to Carlos Castaneda, an immense amount of pettiness is dropped if you turn to acknowledge death. On my last trip to Burma, we went to visit an elderly monk. He's one of the happiest people I've ever met in my life. He's always smiling and laughing. And, uh, you know, when when monks are... um, having their picture taken. They're not supposed to smile. And this guy, you know, uh, we asked him if we could take a picture of him. And he, he obliged us. Um, and he came out and stood with his... This was, this, was his, uh, uh, this was the same visit. That's right, it was the same visit. And he came out and he stood. And um, he had the hardest time not smiling. <laughs> I could see him, you know... Trying to keep his mouth from smiling, it was so touching to just see. That's that was his natural his natural mode was just that that radiance of happiness. Happiness was in his heart. Meta was in his heart. Whenever I went to visit him, I just felt like I was getting this blast of meta, this kind of Im- immersed in this meta. And so we were having a conversation with him, and uh, he had been really sick. 
the last few days. He's tiny, tiny man, so thin, and he was almost like shriveled into this chair that he was sitting in. And uh, and he said, this big smile on his face and a laugh, because that's he always spoke laughing. He said, I almost died a few days ago. <laughs> I mean, that kind of um, ease around death is... Uh, as a possibility for us. Also, um, as we take in this truth and open to this truth of impermanence that, yes, we will die, and everybody else, too, I mean, we we begin to see this is this is not just a truth for me. I mean, it's a the recognition of it comes along with the recognition that everyone is subject to death, and with that recognition comes a kind of a a, a deep poignancy and compassion comes. A beautiful saying by a Tibetan. Monk Sogil Rinpoche. When we finally know that we are dying, and all other sentient beings are dying with us, we start to have a burning, almost heartbreaking sense of the fragility and preciousness of each moment and each being. And from this can grow, grow a deep, clear, limitless compassion for all beings. So, really, this is the way, this is the truth of impermanence and how it opens us to the heavenly message of compassion. At a less obvious level is the the kind of impermanence that we start to see as we come into silence, come into our meditation, begin to observe our experience carefully. We start to see kind of a very rapid changing of experience. No moment is the same as any other moment. Every moment is new. A Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, spoke to this also. He wrote, There is no static being, no unchanging substratum. Change, movement, is the Lord of the universe. Everything is in a state of becoming, of continual flux. Sounds pretty Buddhist. He continues, You cannot step twice into the same river for fresh waters are ever flowing in upon you. And a a more recent Buddhist commentator on this very line, Piyadasi Tara, says, Nevertheless, one who understands the root of the Dharma would go one step further and say, "The The same man cannot step twice into the same river. For the so-called man who is... 
For the so-called man who is only a conflux of mind and body never remains the same for two consecutive moments. So not only is the river changing, we are changing moment to moment. So we can start to see this in our meditation. Now it's not something to do. It's not something to try to do, to try to see. This is... um, kind of more that as we meet our experience it becomes revealed to us in different ways so for instance as we pay attention to our breath and just stay with our breath we see the kind of more obvious level of the impermanence of the breath that every breath has a beginning and an ending that each breath comes and goes. So there's that kind of impermanence there in, in, the, in the breath itself. And then as we start to actually observe the experience of breathing itself, let our minds kind of rest and settle with the, the elemental nature of experience that I was talking about yesterday morning. We see pressure, pulling, contraction, tension, a whole bunch of different changing sensations that make up an in-breath. A whole bunch of different changing sensations that make up an out-breath. We can see this in observing pain. Sometimes when the mind can get really quiet, settled, it lands on a strong physical sensation. It can be interesting to to notice, well, you know, actually, what is that pain? Where is that pain? I've seen this in my own experience. It's kind of like, oh, there's that pain right there. Oh, no, it's not there anymore. It's moved. Again, you can see the kind of rapid changing nature of physical experience. With pain in particular, one of the interesting things to explore is um, how our idea, our our belief or thinking about pain actually kind of... Remember I talked about the hand yesterday? How the hand and um, how the, the idea of hand kind of observed the actual sensations of hand? Well, sometimes we're looking at pain through the idea of pain. And that can make it seem kind of solid, the idea itself. At, at one point, um, on one retreat, I was observing pain, and I, I could, I, what I saw actually was that there was a kind of a contraction around this notion of pain, and a, 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 a moment, a kind of a, there's a, there was the clinging to get rid of the pain, a wanting it to go away. And I could see that, that the idea and the clinging um, that, that when that clinging disappeared, that there would be moments when the pain would go away, and that I was actually missing the fact that the pain was not constant by how the mind was holding on to this idea and the wanting it to go away. So our ideas of things kind of mask this 
fluctuating show. Concepts can kind of solidify our experience. I'll talk more about that in a moment. So not only our body sensations are impermanent and changing rapidly, but also our minds, our moods, our thoughts. They're actually even more fleeting than body sensations. What is a thought? Coming and going. A brief flitting image in the mind. You can notice, too, you know, uh, how many different mind states does your mind go through in a sitting? How much change is there happening for you as you're, as you're meditating? You know, there's, there's um, the kind of frustration that happens when, when something's not going well, and then two moments later there's, there's a kind of, a, oh, a letting go, and there's an ease, and an, there's a whole fluctuation of mind states that happen. How many different mind states have you gone through in the last day, the last hour? So in in seeing the kind of pervasive nature of change in our experience, our bodily experience and our mental experience, we begin to get the picture. This is something that this truth of impermanence is, it's universal. It applies to everything we experience. And it's not personal. We, um, we do sometimes take it personally in a way. It's like, well, why, are, why is this happening to me? Things are changing. Why is this happening to me? It is the truth of all experience. So as I said a few moments ago that... Um, Impermanence can be masked by concepts. That um, it's kind of like the the idea of something holds holds it in our mind so that we don't see the way things change. This happens at a really deep level, actually. It can happen at a very deep level. It can, it can happen at the perceptual level, even. There was a, an example, or there was an exhibit in the Exploratorium that really made this so clear to me, how this uh, um, way that, we, that, that the, the mind and the perceptual processes hold on to things kind of obscures the changing nature of experience. It was a brilliant, it was a brilliant exhibit. I don't know if any of you have seen this. Um, I walked into the Exploratorium with my nephew. This was some years ago, probably 16 years ago now. And um, I noticed in the, in, toward the back of the room there were, there were these flashing lights on these rods that were suspended from the ceiling. There were, I don't know, maybe 10 or so rods hanging from the ceiling. They were, they were you know, these circular rods, maybe about four, uh, 
three or four inches in diameter. They were hanging down. They were probably six feet high, and they were spaced about three or four feet apart. So ten rods spaced three or four feet apart, and there were flashing lights on those rods. And I looked up and I thought, huh, I wonder what that's about, you know, thinking, you know, at some point I'll see the, the description of this exhibit. And, and um, we were wandering around, and at one point, you know, we'd gone through various other exhibits, and at one point my nephew and I were sitting down having a drink, and he was just kind of looking up at the, at the rods, and he, and he said, it's a school bus! And I looked up at the rods, and there were yellow lights flashing on the rods, and then there were little red lights. I thought, well, it's the right color to be a school bus, but I don't see a school bus, you know. And then he said, it's butterflies! I was like, what on earth are you talking about? And so I stood there, kind of like, I want to see what's going on here, you know. And it took kind of a relaxation of the the eye, and a kind of a, a... a particular movement, I guess, of the eye. But um, at some point, my eye relaxed in just the way to allow this image to pop into being. And it was a screen that these rods, these individual rods turned into a screen that was 35, 40 feet long, 6 feet high. And across that screen there was a school bus. It was such a detailed image that I could read the name of the school district that was on the side of the school bus. So my understanding about how this happens is that the the perceptual process holds on to the successive images and kind of pieces them together across to the next rod where it picks up. It's like, it's like if you're looking through slats in a, in a um, fence and you see something driving by. So it's kind of like it's picking up on the, the little bit of information on that one rod. And the mind carries the images across. It's quite astounding. It gave me a real deep appreciation for kind of the way our perceptual process clings to experience. So in reverse, I mean, in that, in that situation, I had to kind of relax my eyes and, and get, get it to be just the right way to be able to see this. But this kind of thing is, is happening to us all the time, that we are um, seeing through this the concept the the, um, the the way our perceptual process works and the ideas the concepts come together to mask this truth of impermanence that that basically all that's happening is that there's you know, these momentary experiences and our brain is putting it together into something sensible now i'm not saying this is something that we should not that we should try to somehow undo. This is really useful for us. This, this way of having concepts and living in the world, and we need the concepts to live in the world. But to understand that they are concepts and that they are masking this truth of impermanence. 
Another way that impermanence is masked is because change happens really, really rapidly. So, um, kind of the, the, the classic example of this from the suttas, I think it's from the suttas, um, is if you take a fire, a stick with fire on it, and you spin around really fast, it will appear as though there's a circle of fire in the air because the, the flame is moving fast enough. It's the same kind of per- perceptual process that I described with the school bus. The, the mind is, is uh, holding on to that image. So it's happening fast enough that it appears that there's something solid there. So there are ways that our mind kind of obscures this truth of impermanence and ways that are helpful to us at times. But what, what we, um, kind of the, the exploration to make is not to abandon the concepts, not to abandon the way that we live in the world, but to understand that they are just useful constructs. So exploring this, you know, observe what you think of as solid. What is it that appears to be solid for you? Some physical sensation appears to be solid, perhaps. On one retreat, that this became my exploration. What is it that I think of as solid? Is it really solid? Beginning to observe it and seeing how the experience breaks down. Right now, just something that sometimes feels solid is the pressure of your buttocks on the chair or cushion or bench. Letting your attention rest in that area. There is a kind of hardness there. and It can feel pretty solid, that bone, that sits bone hitting the this thing you're sitting on. And let your attention rest there and see if there's any sense of pulsing or vibration or tingling. Those sensations are kind of the harbingers of change. So look at, look at what you think of as solid. Not only physical sensations, but you know, we can sometimes attribute permanence to our mental experience as well. You know, things that I am this way, this is who I am for myself. I used to feel like I feel I really kind of identified as being a miserable person. And um, that was solid. That was just the truth. And there were times when I was not miserable. I would notice that. But, but here's what my mind did with that. I said, well, yeah, I'm happy now, but I know what I really am is miserable. <laughs> so, again, the mind creating this concept 
was carrying along the concept and believing the concept as opposed to believing the actual experience which was not miserable in that moment. So observing mental habits, mental patterns, if there's a particular pattern if you feel that is strong or repeating or something that, yeah, that's me, that's who I am. We kind of can have a belief that you know, even if it's not there, it's somehow there lurking, you know, just, just it's really there. You know, we, we believe it's really there, it's just that somehow we're not seeing it in this moment. One of the best ways that I've found to really begin to poke holes in the solidity of that belief, of that concept, is to really take in the times when that pattern is not happening. Let yourself really acknowledge that. Oh, yeah, right now I'm not angry. Right now I'm not miserable. So as we um, observe our experience in various ways, we start to recognize some of the, the truths of what the Buddha was talking about. We see in a moment how we can just be with a pattern of anger. There's some space around that anger. Or even see in a moment the arising of, a, of an inclination towards anger and recognize don't need to go there. In a moment, we can see, oh, look at that. We feel like we deeply understand something in a moment. And we do deeply understand something in a moment. But then the next hour, the next day, we're bitten by that thing again. And it's like, wait a minute, didn't I already understand how this worked? I mean, what's wrong here? I remember on one retreat at Spirit Rock, I was having so much pain in my back, a lot of physical pain. And uh, uh, there was a um, there was one point, I was sitting in the dining room, and it was kind of miserable and uh thought of my teacher came through my mind and I felt like in a way that my teacher was sending me metta so I felt like I was receiving metta and in that moment there was this I was awashed with um, the the happiness of metta and the pain disappeared entirely it was kind of this recognition you know it was kind of an insight in a way around um, um, the, the conditionality of pain how how the mental construct, what the mind was doing, impacted the body. And what I believed in that moment was that I had cured my pain. You know, that I would never again have to experience that pain. Kind of makes me <laughs> kind of ludicrous, you know, when I think about it. But that was what my, oh, I'm glad I don't have to go through that again. That was the thought that crossed through my mind. <laughs> and, you know couple hours later, I mean, it actually was quite amazing in retrospect, 
the the that that uh, the feeling of the kind of bliss of sitting in metta lasted for just a minute maybe, but the freedom from the pain in the body lasted for a couple of hours, and then it came back. You know, but but in retrospect, I see wow, metta is pretty powerful, pretty powerful thing that it it uh, allowed that pain to just vanish for that period of time. So over and over again, I've had to learn, actually, that insights are impermanent. (laughs) Insights come together in a moment because in a moment we understand something. There are causes and conditions that come together to allow us to see that in a moment. We see how a pattern is put together in a moment. A thought arising of self-hatred and realizing, oh, that's just a thought, that's just an impermanent thought, and the self-hatred vanishing. That ability to see that is conditioned based on many factors. So there, there is there is the there is something that we're learning when insight happens. There is something that we begin to deeply understand with insight. We deeply begin, we begin to deeply recognize yes, things are impermanent. Things are unreliable. We begin to really we in a moment we deeply understand that. And so there's a way that that Understanding begins to infiltrate us, even though we're not able to see things from the perspective of that insight all the time. Does that make sense? It's it's a there there is there is a kind of a a shifting that happens underneath, in a way that 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 there's that, that we've learned. We've seen, yes, things are impermanent. So that, you know, at, the, at, at those times when we recognize, okay, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that I'm caught now. I'm seeing things as permanent. We, we understand that the conditions are not ripe now for me to see this clearly in the way that I did before. And yet there's a knowing. There's a kind of a an inner recognition. Yes, I see that I'm caught and somehow I know that it's impermanent anyway. It's, it's, an, it's a reflective kind of understanding. It's a reflective kind of knowing. And that supports us. That can support us. Even though we're not living in that space of that insight. So this is not a mistake. If you notice this for yourself, you know, that you're having to see the same things over and over again, not a mistake. It's part of the way this practice unfolds. So as we start to explore impermanence, the impermanence of things in the world, the impermanence of the way our minds work, Seeing impermanence of the the grosser level of impermanence, the more obvious level of impermanence, seeing how everything, 
all of the objects of the world are subject to this same level of impermanence. It supports our it supports our ability to begin to let go of holding on. Because we see we see that deceptive nature of the wanting. And the mind begins to, to just you know recognize at a very deep level that that holding on is going to create suffering. So the, the understanding the impermanence of the things of the world supports our ability to hold things more lightly. And then as we start to explore in our own experience, we really deeply start to see that you know the things that we're clinging to, we think often especially around material things, you know. We think we're clinging to the things. Or it's like that thing, that's what I want. But when we start to really look at what's going on, we see that what we're actually clinging to, what we're actually wanting, is an idea of that thing. It's not the actual thing itself. And as we see that, as we start to see that, we see, whoa, you know, actually what I... What I'm clinging to, you know, suffering is created by clinging. I see that. And not only that, you know, what I'm clinging to is created by my own mind. And how the, uh, how transient our thoughts, our concepts. Again, as the mind starts to see the transience of what it's clinging to, it very deeply starts to let go. I'll close with a a few paragraphs from a I think he's a Thai monk Prakantipalo who wrote a uh, a piece called The Walk in the Woods he says Everything in everybody, that includes you and me, deteriorates, ages, decays, breaks up and passes away. And we, living in the forest of desires, are entirely composed of the impermanent. Yet our desire impels us not to see this, though impermanence stares us in the face from every single thing around. And it confronts us when we look within, mind and body arising and passing away. So don't turn on the TV, go to the pictures, read a book, seize some food, or a hundred other distractions just to avoid seeing this. This is the one thing really worth seeing. For one who fully fully sees it is free. Let's, Let's let the words settle for a few moments. (laughs) 